Well, do me a favor. <clears throat> Track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. We're doing a series right now where we are looking at the person of Jesus Christ and his ministry to us. It's a very important, obviously a very, very important theme, and so I hope that you find it helpful. But today I wanted to take you into an Old Testament passage uh, that helps us to understand him even better. Um, So Isaiah chapter 42, we'll read verses 1 to 9. This is called a song of the servant. Um, In fact, there are a bunch of them at the end of the book of Isaiah. There are several different servant songs, and this is one of them, and it helps us to better understand our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. Let's read it. I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God, the Lord, says, the creator of the heavens who stretched them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now, as we've opened your word together, We're praying that by your spirit, God, you would speak over each of us. We're praying, God, that you would help us to understand the significance of your son and all that he has accomplished. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith in the son of God, and we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we march through this text, I'm going to ask a few different questions. We're going to look at this announcement that God is making through the prophet Isaiah. And so we'll ask the question, what prompted this announcement? And then we'll ask the question, what is the announcement exactly? And then finally, we'll ask, how on earth will it ever come true? So let's get to work. What prompted this announcement? The, the context tells us about the situation of the people of God. They are in exile at this point. They had been given the promised land. They had been given the word of the Lord. They had been given all of these blessings that God had been promising from the very beginning, but they forfeited those blessings because they were disobedient to the Lord himself, and they were experiencing then the judgment of God. They had been removed from the promised land and were experiencing something of a political defeat. Furthermore, the chapter right before this, chapter 41, tells us 
that God is bringing judgment on the earth. The Israelites had experienced it. Now he's going to bring judgment to all the nations. We see that at the, in the first verse of chapter 41. And one of the ways that he's going to bring about this judgment is through this military power. Uh, there's a king who God is going to bring, and this king is going to be an instrument of judgment on the nations. It's revealed to us later that his name is Cyrus, and he's going to march out and destroy, and God is going to use him and wield him for God's own purposes. And therefore, the people of God are experiencing something of this world in chaos. Things are not as they should be, and they feel that very prominently. They're not in their homeland. They're not where they want to be. They're not experiencing the blessings of God as they would prefer, and so they're living through this cultural moment that's in upheaval. And God tells them the promise. uh, He tells them, excuse me, the reason why things are going so poorly, and it is on account of idolatry. In fact, in chapter 41, we're told that the people have engaged in worship of false gods. And so, God is bringing judgment on the earth because people are not properly relating to him and instead are looking for other solutions. And they're carving these idols and they're worshiping these idols. And so God speaks not only to the nations, but to Israel. And he's saying, you too have done this. And he says in the last verse of chapter 41, he says, behold or look or see, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Here's what God is saying. Here's the reason for this announcement. He's saying there's a problem with humanity, and the problem is that humanity runs after other gods. Instead of looking to the one true God, humanity seeks to find a solution in something or someone other than him. And they go after these gods, and they worship these gods, and God is saying, On account of that idolatry, I am bringing judgment on the earth. And behold, those idols amount to nothing. Well, you might think, okay, Kor, that's interesting, but it sounds very foreign and very remote and maybe irrelevant for the things that I'm going through today. But my pushback on that would be, when I read this, I feel all that we're going through right now. When I think about the condition of the world that the Israelites were going through, it feels somewhat similar to what we're going through today. We're living through a cultural moment where the world feels like it is in an upheaval. Everything is disrupted. And what is humanity doing in this moment? Humanity in this moment is seeking after gods that can save them. And everyone is going to these different gods and these different idols, and they're saying, can you please bring me back to the promised land? Can you please get me the blessings that I so desperately want and deserve? And everyone is clinging to these worthless idols. When we think about um, the world that we're in right now, and as a pastor and a social observer of all that's going on, I see this political idolatry. I've been talking about it for many months now, but I see people looking to politics as a god. And so when we look at this text, you might think through... What would get us back to the promised land, in your opinion? And what I sense and what I've been told by many people is that there is some political vision that is able to accomplish that. 
that there is some political vision that if we were to have this thing come true, this person in office, these policies enacted, if these things would come true, that would get us back to the promised land. And God, maybe today by his spirit, is speaking over us, look, these gods of yours that you're chasing after, that you so desperately want to give you what you think you need, they are false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. What if the issue of idolatry is very much alive and well today and God is reminding us, I have a better way. So what is this announcement? What prompted it is the brokenness of the world and the desperate condition of humanity. So what is the announcement? Well, God makes it very plain. It is a servant of his. Look at verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I I delight. He's, there's a play on words here because he says in the previous verse, at the end of 41, he says, behold, these false gods, and look at how worthless they are for you. But then he says, behold, my servant. Look, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. God's announcement is the announcement of a servant who's going to come and set things right. He's calling our attention then to this servant. So it begs the question, who is this servant? And the answer might not be as clear as you think. In fact, if you're just reading the book of Isaiah, God has already described a servant. Uh, In fact, if you just look over in the previous verse, he makes it very clear. The, The servant is his people, the nation of Israel. He calls Israel his servant. Look at verses 8 and 9. Of chapter 41. He says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you. I said, You are my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you. So maybe the easy answer is just to say, The servant of God that's being spoken of here is Israel in its finest moment. Maybe it is the people of God, if they were to behave and embrace the calling that God has given to them, then all these things could come true. Maybe all the blessings of God would flow right through God, right from God, through his people and to the world. But the problem is Israel has never fully embraced that calling. They fail over and over again to embrace the calling that God has given them that started at the very beginning of them being blessed to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. They've failed in so many ways. In fact, their current condition is evidence of that. They're in exile. Furthermore, God goes on to speak of the servant again in chapter 42. A little bit later on from the text that we were looking at, he addresses Israel, his servant. And what does he say to them this time? He says, you, this is a sample. <clears throat> you can read for yourself that entire paragraph. In verse 20, he says, you have seen many things but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. He's addressing his servant Israel, and he's saying, you of all people know better, and you're doing the same thing that everyone else is. You know better because I've given you my law, and I've given you my commandments, and I've given you my covenant relationship. You of all people ought to know how to live in harmony with me, 
but you pay no attention, your ears are not open, and you will not listen. So the servant that God is speaking of here in, in Isaiah 42 at the front end, it is not the servant Israel. Israel could never embrace the calling that God is about to unroll here. The servant is actually the son. We find that later on, later on in the Bible, and we actually looked at it last week. There was a time when Jesus of Nazareth was being baptized in Matthew chapter 3. And <clears throat> there's an echo of Isaiah chapter 42. When Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water, and the Spirit descends like a dove and alights on him. Does that sound familiar? Because in this text, it tells us that he says, I will put my spirit on him. But it says explicitly in Matthew 3, 17, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. This is an echo, this is an allusion, this is a reference to Isaiah and it's saying this individual, Jesus of Nazareth, is my son in whom I delight. This is the one that I delight in. This is the one in whom I am well pleased. The servant is the son of God. And if you think that's a, a novel idea that I'm presenting to you, it, it's abundantly clear in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew, when he's writing his gospel, he's talking about some events that were unfolding and he's talking directly about Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, this happened in fulfillment because it was written, and he quotes Isaiah 42, 1 through 5. He quotes it verbatim. He puts it right there in his gospel in Matthew chapter 12. So the servant of the Lord is Jesus Christ himself. God is saying, behold my servant. Behold the person and work of my son, Jesus Christ. In him, I delight. I set my spirit upon him and he will fulfill my plan for the world. One of the reformers put it like this. He's talking about the reality that when the prophets get carried away and they start making these incredible promises, it doesn't take very long before they have to begin talking about Christ, and the reformer put it like this. They, he said that, um, <clears throat> that the reason why they have to jump so quickly to Christ is because there are some promises that they make that are hard to believe, and if they wouldn't think about Christ, then they, they otherwise would have been doubtful and uncertain promises. But 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that in Christ, all of the promises of God are yes and amen. God is speaking here through his prophet Isaiah, and he's saying, look, here is my servant. It is my son. He is my son. He's the Savior. Jesus is the servant that is presented here in the servant song and in all the servant songs here at the end of Isaiah. Now, this servant has a job to do. So the, the announcement is, I have a son. Pay attention to him. But let's look now at his resume. Let's look at the job that he has to do on this earth. He, his job is made clear in the second half of verse 1. It says, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Jesus is the one who is going to bring justice. And justice in the Bible is a very loaded term. It, it means that he's going to make all things right. 
that he's going to do some things that are going to promote the world being as it should. Remember, the people were experiencing uh, cultural upheaval and things were not as they thought they should be. And here, Jesus is coming to bring justice to the earth, to set things right again. Now, on the one hand, that means that he's going to punish the evildoers. He's going to bring retribution on those who have done wrong. He's going to seek justice down that vein. He's going to look at those who are doing harm to the oppressed and to the disenfranchised and to the disadvantaged, and he's going to look at them and say, those who are putting you in that situation, I'm going to do something about them. But on the other hand, there's a positive side to the pursuit of justice as well, and it is the pursuit of creating an environment that is equitable creating an environment where everyone can thrive, where everyone feels safe and well cared for. Jesus is the one, the only one, who can bring that sort of justice to the earth. He's going to bring justice to the nations. Look at verses 3 and 4. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged. His justice he will be able to accomplish. It will reach the farthest corners of the world, and in his pursuit and execution of justice, he will be successful. It's a radical concept right now because if you listen to the cultural commentary on the things that are going on, we can't even come to an agreement of what justice is. If you listen to kind of political commentary on different social issues, you find very differing viewpoints. Some people would say that those issues of justice aren't even real issues. And other people are crying out for help, and we can't even agree on what the help needs to be. And then when you begin to look at solutions, we can't get anywhere near it. Nobody can come to a firm understanding of what justice would really entail in the earth. But Jesus here, when he pursues justice, he will not falter. He will not be discouraged. Listen, as a pastor uh, trying to lead a people through a moment like this, I look at some of the social issues in our day and I just feel that anxiety because I understand the differing perspectives and I understand how people are coming at this from totally different lenses of the world and, and therefore different conclusions. And there's a part of me that's fearful and timid that falters, a part of me <clears throat> that's discouraged by it, knowing that if I even bring up some of these topics that are obviously found in the scriptures, that even the mention of them causes some people to just get angry. And so I falter and I'm discouraged, but here's a, an encouraging note from the Lord. His pursuit of justice will not falter. He will not be discouraged. He will see to it that justice is served in the earth. He will create an environment that is equitable, that is safe, he will create an environment where people are able to experience his provision and protection. The word that they used to use back then was peace or shalom. He will bring justice to the earth so that all peoples everywhere will have the ability to experience uh, flourishing, human flourishing. Jesus is going to see that one through. That is a part of this announcement of good news he will establish justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. 
In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. And <clears throat> that's an expression that just talks about people in the, in the most remote places of the world. It's an expression much like we would say, uh, it's going to the four corners of the earth. Well, the earth doesn't have corners, but that's an expression that means as far as you might even find people, that's where this message is going to. He will establish justice on the earth and his teaching the islands will put their hope. All people everywhere, because of Jesus Christ, will have opportunity to hear the news of what he's done, and he will create a world that is safe and fair and good. That's what we're dealing with. So let's look at some of the ways in which this justice will come true. Um, we actually get some bullet points here. We'll fly through them pretty quickly. But here are a few different ways in which the justice that Jesus is bringing will be established on the earth. It's in verses 6 to 9. We'll just rifle through them. But one of the things that Jesus is coming to do is to reestablish a relationship with God. He's coming to make it possible to relate properly to God. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, I will keep you. This is God speaking to the servant. And God is saying, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. So Jesus is going to be this covenant. That's a relational document. It's a, it's a document that spells out the terms that are necessary for a relationship to exist between a king and his subjects. So a subject might be thinking, how am I supposed to interact with the king? The covenant document would spell that out. Here are the terms. If you obey these terms, we can maintain this relationship. And God is saying, Jesus, righteous one, you are the covenant. The way in which people are going to relate to God is through him. He is the terms of agreement of how we could ever come into a right relationship with God. God is going to make him to be a covenant for the people. So that is the good news of the gospel. The way that we come into a right relationship with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. God spells out the terms and he makes it clear that by faith in him, through him, we can relate to God the Father, the Holy One, the Righteous One. He's a covenant for the people. He's a light for the Gentiles. He's good news not only for the Israelites, but for all people everywhere. He is a light to the nations. He liberates people from bondage. Look at verse 7. Part of his good news is that he opens eyes that are blind. He frees captives from prison. He releases those from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness. He is able to release people from the situation that they find themselves in. He's able to open eyes that are blind. He's able to free those who are in prison. He's able to release those who are in darkness. This is both a a physical reality, and a spiritual reality that Jesus is coming to bring. In fact, he makes that very clear that that is a function of his ministry. Right at the front end in, in Luke's gospel, he, he takes a verse like this and he says, this is today in your hearing, this is being fulfilled. I have come to do these sorts of things. And sure enough, in his public ministry, he did exactly that. He would heal the blind, he would release those in captivity, and he would free those from spiritual darkness. Another aspect of his justice on the earth is the abolishment of idols. Remember, humanity has a problem of trying to find other gods. So God here says of his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. We might be chasing after other things that we think if we were to obtain them would give us salvation or bring us back to the promised land. But God says, I will not allow for my glory to be given to another or my praise given to idols. And so Jesus is the manifestation of God in flesh. And when we see him in all of his splendor and all of his glory, we will be embarrassed for ever placing our hope in anything other than him. So one aspect of his justice is to open our spiritual eyes to the reality that we maybe have trusted in other things, but we are supposed to properly relate to God by trusting in Jesus Christ. Another aspect of the justice of God on display in the world is the fact that he is making all things new. Look at verse 9. It says, See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. God is saying, I am going to do something that you might describe as new, and I'm telling you about it in advance. I'm telling you about it before they even spring into being. Now, at the very end of the Bible, we get this vision, and John is writing the book Revelation, and he sees the vision of the, the, um, the temple of God, the city of God, the dwelling place of God coming down from heaven, and, and it, now it's residing on the earth, and he's, trying to, he's grasping at words to try to describe what that's like, and, and all of a sudden he's hearing a, a voice of the Lord himself, and the Lord is saying, that there's this new thing that is happening, that he is doing away with all these former realities, all the brokenness and sadness and pain and hurt and disease and death. And he says, all those things are going away. I'll wipe away every tear from every eye. No more death or pain or sickness for the old order of things is fading away. And then from the throne, the voice says, see, I am making all things new. Part of the way that the justice of God will be on display on the earth is when Jesus returns and he makes all things new. He will fix all that is broken. He will set right all that is wrong. And Jesus is able to do it. So our third question is, how does this come true? How on earth could this come true? That actually sounds too good to be true. Okay, Cor, that sounds beautiful. I like that idea of the servant coming and making all these things as they should be. But look at us. I mean, the Israelites during the days of Isaiah, they would hear this and they'd probably think, okay, yeah, that sounds great, but that's not, never going to happen in our lifetime. These things could never come true. Look at us. We're in exile. And we today might look at the condition of the world as we find it and say, this sounds wonderful. Too bad. Too bad it will never happen for us. How does this come true? Let me show you a couple things here. I'm trying to incline your heart to believe in Jesus Christ and what he's able to do here. Let's look at this. The text tells us one of the ways that we can know that it will come true is that the Lord himself will do it. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is what God, the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called 
you, the servant, in righteousness, I will take hold of your hand. Here's what God is saying. I will ensure that this comes true. I, creator God, will see to it that this does come true. You can believe it because I am committed to this plan. God is going to accomplish it. So how does this come true? It comes true because God is seeing it through. And it comes true because of the servant himself. He is an incredible, he's an incredible individual. Look at him. He's so humble. You would expect that he would come with might and power and prowess and all these different things, but there is something counterintuitive about him. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's humble. He's unassuming. Let's look at verse 3. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. How will this come true? And you begin to recognize this servant and the way in which he goes about his ministry. It's counterintuitive to us, but it's beautiful. Our hearts long for this reality. He's the kind of servant king who comes with a gentleness. And so broken people, people who feel like a bruised reed, a reed that is destroyed, that has no hope and has no future, or a smoldering wick, you know, on a candle as you've, you've lit it and you've watched it burn and you blow it out and then you see the wick kind of collapse into the wax and it just looks like it's never going to be effective again as a candle. And you look at that and you go, okay, we'll just throw that one away. But Jesus is the kind of servant who is so gentle and so lowly that he looks at each of us in our brokenness and in our need and he cares perfectly for us. How do we know that this is going to come true? Watch the servant. He is beautifully gentle with his people. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan preacher, he wrote a, a book-length treatment on it called A Bruised Reed, and I just want to read you this one line from his book on the subject. He says, he, speaking of this servant, speaking of Jesus, he is a meek king. He will admit mourners into his presence, a king of poor and afflicted persons. As he has beams of majesty, so he has a heart of mercy and compassion. One of the reasons why we can believe that this will come true is because of the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. If you look at Christ and the way that he deals with humanity, you begin to get a sense that it's really going to happen. The way that he looks after the broken and the downtrodden, the sinners and the sufferers, and he calls them to himself and they're magnetized to him and he loves them as they are is a beautiful testimony to God's commitment to this plan. Jesus is the king who loves us like that. And we can trust him then because he cares for us in that sort of way. Well, this week, as I was uh, preparing for this, I, um, I bumped into a little uh, section uh, that, that was a little bit discouraging because somebody was talking about the fact that if Jesus is like that, then pastors should be like that. They should be gentle with people. They should be careful with people. They should be able to care for them in their unique condition. They should be patient with them as they try to lead them to greater degrees of understanding and faithfulness. And I, f I felt that conviction this week because I, I realized I don't always do that. In fact, in a moment like this, it's been very easy to get frustrated, to begin to look at people and to just be discouraged by 
the immaturity, the Christian immaturity on display or the, uh, you know, just partisan ideas that are being flouted out there. And I, I look at certain people and I just get discouraged by the situation. But one of the reasons why I believe that this is going to come true is because God has made this promise. And the more that I look at the servant, the more that I behold him and who he is, the more it feels as though it really is happening. He loves people. He cares for people. He's careful with people. He perfectly treats the condition of each individual in their need. And that helps me to believe that it will come true. Well, look at how he quietly wins his victory. Look at verse 2. It tells us he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. We're told that the way that he's going to go about this campaign is he's going to do it very quietly. It's so different from what we would expect. In, in the world that we're in right now, we see people going into the public square and asserting themselves and putting forth their best arguments and trying to be loud and trying to be persuasive. But here's what this servant does. He quietly wins justice. He quietly goes about his business and he does something very counterintuitive and it is the way of the gospel. Instead of being loud, instead of showing his might or his power, he quietly goes to the cross. In fact, we read about it just a little bit later on in the book of Isaiah where we're told of what this servant will ultimately do. This is Isaiah 53 and it is a gospel passage. It's verse 7. And it's describing the servant that we have been spending our time reflecting on today. Listen to it here. It's Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. He's coming to do away with oppression and affliction, but he himself was oppressed and afflicted. Yet, he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. What did Jesus do for us? What did this servant do for us that would obtain for us the way to justice and peace? He quietly went to the cross and died. He went to the cross like a sheep before its shearers is silent. He did not open his mouth. He did the will of the Father. And he went there and he gave of his life for you and I. We can believe that this promise is going to come true, that justice will prevail in the earth because we're following a king who is willing to do everything necessary for our salvation. He did everything for us at Calvary, and he said it is finished. We place our faith in him, and we trust in him. So God today has said, look, the idols, they're worthless. They're they're false. They don't do it for you, but behold my son. Look at him. Look at who he is. Look at what he's doing. Look at what he is willing to do for you at Calvary. Look at him and worship. Let's pray. Lord, our world is in disarray. And we feel that. And we acknowledge that. And we're honest about it. Lord, we also admit that it is all too easy to chase after false gods and false promises. We have so many different solutions that we think would fix the world. And here today, you're reminding us how worthless those things can be. But you're also showing us the servant king, your son, and how excellent he truly is. 
He is the servant who is willing to die for us. And by his death and his resurrection, he is going to bring justice to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, right now, we trust in him. And we believe that he has done everything for us. So we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen.